Right, so the children are anxiously going out the door. Some more anxious than others, ready to have their lesson this time this morning. But this morning, we're going to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up. The fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy, and then find chapter 32 towards the end of that particular book of the Bible. Deuteronomy 32. You know, last week, we started talking about how blessed we are to have Jesus Christ. We looked into 1 John chapter 2, and we've seen that we are extremely blessed to have Jesus Christ, the righteous, as our advocate. He is the one who pleads our case before the Father. He is the one who accepts us as we are with our faults and our flaws. So we are very blessed to have Jesus, the righteous, as our supporter and our campaigner and our fighter and our crusader. And again, he is our advocate. We, we're very blessed to have Jesus as our advocate. What a blessing it is. We, we focused upon that last week by looking into the first letter, the epistle, First John. But today, we actually stay on the theme of being blessed, but switch to an Old Testament reading of a man that committed himself in his way to God. God, we're going to find, used him in a very mighty way. He poured blessings on him. He provided for him and the people through the wilderness as he led them from under the hand of Pharaoh. You probably know him. His name is Moses. And as a result of the blessings that Moses received from God, he at least penned a portion of what we're going to look at today called the Song of Moses and dedicates a song, a song to God from the blessings that he received. If it's called the Song of Moses, you're going to find, if you know the scriptures well, there is more than one Song of Moses. There's another one in Exodus. But the one in Exodus is distinctly different from the one we're going to read today in chapter 32 of Deuteronomy. Now, the Deuteronomy version of the Song of Moses is 47 verses in its entirety. Yeah, don't fret, don't worry, though. We're not going to read all 47 verses. We're going to read just a portion of it. We're going to read the first 20 verses of Deuteronomy chapter 32. As we read a portion of this particular Song of Moses, we're going to find out that it wasn't always easy for Moses. We're going to find it wasn't easy for him, wasn't easy for the people. We, we're going to notice they had made mistakes. Moses made plenty of mistakes. The people, the Israelites following, made plenty more mistakes. And then we, too, make mistakes in our lives. But ultimately, we should always learn from any of the mistakes we made so we do not get in the habit of repeating them. We're also going to realize, if we look into these 20 verses of chapter 32 in Deuteronomy, that we receive hope by trusting God. Again, it's 47 verses. You can maybe read all of it later if you desire to. We're going to look at just the first 20 verses again this morning. Ultimately, it will reveal to us that just as Moses felt the blessings of God, we too can receive and feel the blessings of God and forever be grateful and thankful. Stand with me this morning as we do so to look into chapter 32, Deuteronomy, chapter 32, again, the first 20 verses only in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. Verse 1, give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain. 
my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the earth. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all of his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness, and without inequity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land, in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock, and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd, milk from the flock, with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan, and goats, and with the very finest of the wheat, and you drink foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God, who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. Father, Lord, we come to you this morning having read your word, and we just ask for a blessing to be upon the reading. But Lord, we also turn our attention to this song and a portion of it that we have read, and we ask this morning, Lord, that you'll lead, that you'll guide the words that will be met, mentioned here today, that be your words, not mine, so we can understand how this portion of this song can apply to us and to our lives. So again, Lord, we invite your spirit to reign, to fill our hearts, and to be sovereign here this morning. Let's be thankful today for this message and what you shall share with us as we go through it. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 
All right, well, as you're being seated, as before we begin to apply the text, it's a little bit of a lengthy reading, again, not near the entirety of the Song of Moses. There's much more to be read and to be considered, but we read a small portion of it. But before we begin to apply like we want to do to see how these verses pertain to us in our lives that we live, let us receive a little bit of background. Because Moses now, as we get to this portion of the Pentateuch, to the Torah, to the law, in Deuteronomy 32, Moses has greatly advanced in years. In fact, at the end of this chapter, the first 47 verses is the Song of Moses. But in verses 48 through 52, it will inform us of Moses' imminent death. So Moses is then aware of the fact that he has advanced in years. And now he's gathering all the people to speak to them before he should depart. He's sharing some information, some words of wisdom, if you will, to the people. So listen to the beginning. This starts way back in chapter 31, in fact. But listen to the beginning of the 31st chapter where he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to come out and come in, to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. Jump to verse 6. He says further, as he spoke to Joshua, we see here speaking also through Moses and to the people, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. So notice as we go back then to a little bit of what's happening in the previous chapter, in chapter 31, that we see here that, that a couple of things is revealed to us. Number one, we learn Moses' age. Again, he's advancing in years. How old is he? 120. And I would think then that's advancing in years. I mean, John's not quite there yet, but he's getting closer and closer. As the day dawns upon another day. So he's not quite there, but 120 is near the end of Moses' life. So he reveals for us that Moses is near the very end of his life, yes. But it also reveals this, that the leadership is about to be turned over to who? To Joshua. But before Moses departs, before his death, and before the reign of Joshua in his leadership, Moses believes it's right. He feels before he leaves the people, he wants to leave them with some words of wisdom. Words in which reminds them then, if you will, of their rebellion, but also of God's goodness. That's what the song of Moses offers us. He's honest with them. He tells them that they are rebellious people, but he also reminds them of God's goodness. So we look at the song and we begin to apply it in very similar manner. We'd note how we too and other people around us, we are all at some point, somehow, some way, a little bit rebellious. And we also then use this, the song to remind us and to acknowledge God's goodness. Despite our rebellion, God is still good. So two points ultimately emerge for application from the reading of the first 20 verses of Deuteronomy 32 this morning. We're going to elaborate upon each of them, 
But in simplistic terms, here they are. Number one, the Song of Moses can reveal to us that we are of bad character, but like it says, that God is of high character. So it tells us of the high character of God, but the bad character of the people. We are part of the people. But it also tells us, as the song is revealed in the first 20 verses that we're looking at this morning, of the consistency of God's blessings, his great blessings he offers to each and every one of us. Watch well, the two application points. We're going to expand upon each of them. Again, the first one is the high character of God, the bad character of the people. We could say the good character of God and the bad character of we, the people. Now, as you hear that now for probably the third or fourth time, the good character of God, the bad character of us as people, or the Israelites, or whoever, isn't that really the same old song and dance? Haven't we heard this before about God's great, good, high character and how we are just low, bad in character? I mean, God is of high character. He is good. He is sovereign. He's almighty. He is really perfect in every possible way. But then look at us. We the people. We are not perfect in any possible way. We are sinners. We rebel in some way. And then we are ones, if anyone will display bad character, it'll be us as his children, and as people. And in the Song of Moses, we can find this clearly is the case. In verse 5, he says, They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished, of bad character. They are a crooked and twisted generation. You may remember verse 20, the one we stopped with, even mentioned is a perverse generation in whom is no faithfulness. But maybe the bad character is best displayed in verses 15 through 17, which says once again, But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that come recently, whom your fathers have never dreaded. It clearly spells out for us the extent of the bad character of the people that Moses has either had the fortune or unfortune to lead. The bad character of the people is clearly displayed in verses 15 through 17. But having said that, I recognize that that wording expressed in verses 15 through 17 is not words that we use every day. So let me put it in terms we can more better understand. It. Because it refers to Jeshurun in verse 15. Jeshurun actually means the upright one. But Jeshurun is essentially Israel. But it says Israel, Jeshurun, the Israelites, the Jewish people, soon became fat and unruly. Now, that don't mean like your physique of fat or your behavior is still unruly. I mean, to some extent, yes, maybe it is, but to become fat and unruly means they grew heavy, they grew plump, they were stuffed. Think of this. 
think of how if you're about to have Thanksgiving dinner and there's a lot of stuff laid out on the table, I mean, a big spread out there for you, and you begin to partake into it. I mean, we partake into Thanksgiving, we can become literally plump, stuffed, fat, and maybe because we're miserable afterwards, even a little unruly. But somehow, some way, we can take that little analogy and then take it and apply it to the situation with the Israelites. Because on Thanksgiving, we can become guilty of overindulging. And now the Israelites have also overindulged in the sense that they have sinful practices continually of bad character, bad decisions. I mean, they forsook God, meaning they abandoned the God who had blessed them and who had created them, who had made them. They made light of the rock of their salvation. How did they make light of God? Again, verse 16 says they stirred up his jealousy by worshiping false pagan gods, which is an abomination. Verse 17 reveals they provoked the Lord to anger, to fury, with detestable deeds such as offering sacrifices which are not really to God or to demons or to newly recently got, uh, arrived gods and of ones maybe their ancestors never feared, never dreaded. So in essence, the Israelites offended, sinned against, they sinned against, they offended God with their actions. They stirred his jealousy. I mean, only God is to be worshipped. So they stirred up his jealousy. In a sense, they worshiped these false foreign gods and provoked him to anger. That's what they did. A people of bad character. But what we need to realize as we take what's happening with them and now apply it to our lives is that we are really no different. We're not really so much different. I mean, we still have daily sinful practices which still angers God. I mean, yeah, the situations are different. That's thousands of years ago. And we may or may not literally be worshiping some false pagan God. But when you really dissect it and begin to look at the lives that we live compared to their lives, we're really not that much different. We're really not that much different. Why? Because we are rebels. I mean, it seems as our very nature, when we come into the world from the womb, we seem to just have a rebellious nature. I mean, from infancy to death, we rebel towards something. We may rebel towards our parents. We may rebel to teachers, to coach, to authority, to the law. We even go so far to rebel to God. We rebel. And we rebel that displays, obviously, our bad character. One of the things I've begun to realize, as I'm 57 years of old, I didn't just realize it this morning when I woke up. I realized it years ago that when I have children, there's one of them back there. That's Kayla. There's one of them back here. That's Chase. I have another one, Tyler, who hasn't come to this church. He has a church in Princeton. But I realized a long time ago that they are rebellious children. And I just about bet you 
that any of your children in somehow, some way, have just at least been a little bit rebellious as well. I see some people already shaking their heads. We know we have, I see them pointing the fingers even. We need this pointing to Lori. Lori, you're such a rebel. I know. So we have rebellious children. They never seem to want to listen to their parents. I mean, we've already gone through that, haven't we? And they seem to think they can fool us, but we've already done that. We've already been there. We've already got that T-shirt. So they rebel. I know this. I now notice that my grandchildren are being rebellious. All of them. Even Jasper, little four or five-year-old Jasper is rebellious. Even to his parents, even sometimes to grandpa, even though I spoiled him completely rotten. He still rebels. Anna as well, and so does Micah. They're all rebellious. So we're all rebellious people. But I've also noticed, as I've lived a few years, even in the managerial realm for quite some time, that even people who work for you are rebellious. I mean, it's not just my rebellious children I've had to suffer through in life. I've had employees who are completely rebellious, who just would not listen, who think they know more than their boss. Can you believe that? And most of the times, actually, they did. But I've also recognized one other thing, because now part of what I do on a daily basis is drive a school bus. And you know what? There's rebellious children on the school bus. Who would have thought, you know? So we are rebels. Now, I should say, as I mentioned, the names of my children, or look at the, I'm thinking about some kids on the bus right now, or some people we used to work with. Not all of us are some really described as a rebel. I mean, it really isn't everyone. I mean, there are many people who are not rebellious and fully respect authority. Now, sometimes you really have to look hard to find it. But there are people who are not so much rebellious and will respect authority. But then I recognize how there's always that one guy or that one girl, but you say one person who simply will not listen and rebels to anything and everything, creating trouble, stirring the pot, causing chaos and confusion. There always seems to be someone in a group who is the rebel. But here's the thing. We often don't think that we're that one person. We don't think we're that one guy or one girl. We don't seem to see our moments of rebellion. We don't seem to see our moments of imperfection. We don't recognize ourselves as rebels. And maybe, I got thinking about this, maybe we don't recognize our imperfections Maybe we don't recognize our sinful attitude and behavior because we begin to compare ourselves to others and the world. And the world is so blatantly evil and sinful that we begin to think we look awesome compared to the rest of the world. But then I begin to remember this, that we are not to judge ourselves to the world. Our actions and words should not be judged to others in the world. I mean, yeah, we might look good comparing to them, but we're not comparing ourselves to them. We should be comparing our actions, our words, our behavior, our attitude only to God. 
and his standard of perfection that he would want for all of us. When we truly begin to consider our lives and to measure ourselves not against society, but truly to God, then we begin to see that we have these imperfections. God's standard is perfection, which we are not. I mean, James chapter 2, verse 10 reminds us of our imperfections. It says, for whoever keeps the whole law, if it can be done, and yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. Now, of course, I use James chapter 2, verse 10, and I actually recognize that we are not governed by keeping of the Old Testament laws. But yet I do recognize how we still break and ignore the laws, the commandments that Jesus set before us. I mean, we have with us the Big Ten, the Big Ten Commandments, okay? We know there's the Ten Commandments that should be the rules in which we're living by. I mean, things like we know, do not commit murder, do not commit adultery. We seem to think, okay, those are easy. If I'm looking at standards of perfection, I'm okay. I've not committed murder, and I'm not committing adultery, so I'm okay, right? But no, not compared to the words that Jesus expressed. Look in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. In regards to murder, it's not just actually killing someone. He says this. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. A little bit words expressed differently when you look into words of Jesus compared to simply do not murder. Or how about adultery? In chapter 5, also Matthew, you have heard it said, you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So in, in anger, I mean, in times we've been angry, we may have had some hate towards someone, may have even had some insult towards someone. Jesus considers those as being sinful activities, as is looking lustfully at some other person. I mean, the whole point being here that we are not perfect people. As compared to God's standard, we are not perfect people. We fall short because we sin. We may not like to admit it, but Paul is correct. When he writes in Romans chapter 3, none is righteous, no, not one. He says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Again, the whole point we're trying to establish here is that all these things reveal the bad character of we, his children, we the people. We are of bad character. But so were the Israelites. So getting back to the text, the Israelites, Moses included, they've all fallen short. 
They are rebellious people who have worshipped these unknown false gods, thereby provoking the Lord to anger. So I use the words of Warren Worsby to sum all that up. He says, you would think that Israel would have exalted such a great God and counted it as a privilege to know him and to serve him, but they did not. Instead, they turned to idols and corrupted themselves and blemished their own name and standing. He says, what a way to repay their father for all he had done for them. Now, borrow those words of Worsby, and I know he's perhaps talking about the Israelites, but I see how also he could be talking to me and you, that we also believe that, well, at times we believe that God owes us something, and, and, and we don't see that we should be exalting him, living the right life of his perfection the best we can, and seeing what a blessing it is he gives to us. I mean, like Warren Worsby says, what a way to repay the Father, for all he has blessed us with. And what a way to be thankful to him. We source Worsby's words to make sure you recognize that we're no different than the people we're talking about in the Song of Moses. But then we also see this, that in our sin against the almighty, powerful, sovereign, perfect God, as Moses alludes to, we also find that he is a loving God. I mean, God is good all the time. And all the time, even when we're not, God is good. Which means then that we can always count on God of high character, of good character. Our God is a God of high, good character. Again, the whole point we're trying to establish here right now is the fact the high, good character of God and the bad character of we the people. I mean, our character, at best, is questionable. We've alluded to this. It seems that sometimes we just can't seem to help ourselves. We have the great, loving, compassionate, almighty God who's pleading with us to want to establish this meaningful relationship with us, and we just push him away. We say, God, I don't need you right now. We push him away. He's trying to establish a relationship. We keep pushing, 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 pushing him away. For what? Why do we push God away? Why do we have the bad character? Why do we sin? We do because we want a temporary moment of satisfaction. And that's the best that it is. A temporary moment of satisfaction. But then God, the one of high character, is just like an awesome loving parent. I mean, my kids, even though they've been rebellious over the years, I still love them. That's the way God is. We are rebels. We are of bad character. That don't mean he stops loving us. I could give you countless stories of things pertaining to my children. They would be extremely embarrassed if I share them all with you. I'm not going to. But I still love them. We have a loving father who loves us despite even the fact that we are bad character and rebels. In verse 11 that we read in the text today suggests that he's like an eagle protecting her young, who, who continues to lead and direct and care for all of us. 
I mean, God is awesome. He's more than awesome. Verse 4 says he's our rock. Charles Stanley says when we feel afraid or uncertain about the future, it lifts our spirits and strengthens our faith to remind ourselves of the glorious character of God. There is no rock like the God of Abraham. When push comes to shove, only the God of Israel remains standing and immovable, and he is our God. He is our God. He's our loving father because he is great, good, high character. Even when we have bad character, we are so blessed. I mean, God guides us. He directs us. He protects us. And he welcomes us back. Even when we've offended him. Because he is of high character. Because he is of high character, we can count on him. We are the ones of bad character. God is the one of high good character who is consistent in blessing us. Please note again that we are consistently rebellious, whereas God is consistently good and he's blessing us. He's always blessing us, which leads then to our second application, which was again the consistency of great blessings that God gives us. We return once more to verses 10 and 11. And I just love, as we go back to begin, consider reading these verses, I love how these verses portray God's true love he has for all of us as we even have bad character. I mean, as we read these verses once more, they depict how special we really are to God. Look at verse 10. He found him in a desert land. In the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him. He kept him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. If your Bible is still open, circle, underline, do something with the apple of his eye. I mean, the apple of one's eye describes a thing or person which someone loves above all others. Someone's favorite person or thing. A person or thing in which they are extremely proud of. When the expression an apple of one's eye, I looked up the expression and, and Googled it to find out perhaps a little bit more about it. And I found out it goes back to the 9th century being used by King Alfred of Wessex in a pastoral care manual. Interesting enough, I mean, it may or may not change anything for us, but essentially... The phrase, apple of my eye, exists. At the very least in English, the apple of my eye exists today to display something or someone that we cherish above all else. The apple of my eye means we cherish it above all else. So think about this for a moment. Who or what is the apple of your eye? Just think about it for just a moment. Who or what is the apple of your eye? Now, I'm looking at Amanda over here, and I just know for her that Dorothy would be the apple of her eye. I mean, our children, although they are rebellious, they start out as so cute and cuddly. Laura Lai over here, look at her. Cute and cuddly, patience pampering with her. I mean, she, 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 she's the apple of your eye. I mean, it's something we cherish above all else. So we, we have something or something 
It's the apple of our eye. Then think about what it is. And then quickly transition to the fact that you are the apple of God's eye. You're the apple of his eye. I mean, doesn't that just make us feel so wonderful and special and extremely blessed? We are the apple of his eye. Doesn't that verse just tell us how special we are to God? Even in our bad, rebellious character, people, lives that we live, we're the apple of his eye. I find it extremely interesting that the psalmist, go back down to Psalm 17, 8, you'll see it behind me in just a moment, but it expresses the expression, apple of my eye, but also sources the utilization of the wings. It says, keep me, God, keep me. As the apple of the eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings. I put Psalm 17, 8 there so you'll see that the psalmist now employs both the apple of my eye, but also the shadow of your wings, perhaps referring to the eagle as verse 11 suggested. Verse 11, he's like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them burying them on its pinions or its feathers. I mean, it's a great verse to illustrate the loving father's care that he gives to each one of his children. You know, the Bible says a lot about eagles. I don't know if you wear this or not, but in, in Isaiah 40, verse 31, it mentions eagles. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up their wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Also, Psalms 91.4 talks about eagles. Well, it doesn't say eagle, but it could be referring to one. He will cover thee with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. So I could give you many, many, many more references to how the Bible makes a reference to an eagle. But I don't think any reference to any animal or eagle is any better than Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 11. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. I mean, with the reference to the nest here, the verses speak of a family of eagles, a father figure, a mother figure, a family of eagles. So in considering that, while we're doing some research this week, I found this possible explanation I'm about to read to you of a verse as it relates to eagles. So bear with me. I don't want to mess it up, so I'm going to read this to you. Verse 11 is behind me. Consider it, and then listen. The father eagle is there in the nest along with the mother. They have built their nest high on the ledge of a cliff. The little eagles have hatched and are growing, but as of now, they have never flown. The parent eagles have responsibility to their young. The mother broods over those young for a while, but there must come a time in their life when the mother eagle must begin to stir the nest. Regarding the nest, in fact, an eagle builds her nest first out of rough sticks and then lines it with mud and leaves. And then often they will kill some small animal like a rabbit or squirrel and use the fur to line the nest. When the mother eagle begins to stir the nest, what that means is that she troubles it. And what happens is this. One day as the baby eagles are out 
of the nest playing on the rocky ledge. The mother will take the soft lining out of the nest. And that night, the baby eagles have to sleep on the mud and the rough sticks. A few days later, while the baby eagles are out playing, the mother will take her powerful wings and will sweep the nest over the side of the cliff. That night, the little eagles will sleep on the cold, hard stone. A few days later, the father eagle will take one of those little eagles on his back and will fly high over the valley. Just about the time when the little eagle is enjoying the scenery and relaxed, that father eagle will dive out from underneath the little eagle and wow the little eagle to fall. As that little eagle then begins to fall and tumble, its natural instinct is to begin to flap its wings. And so the little eagle is falling and flapping and tumbling. It seems to be headed to the rocks beneath. But that father eagle was flying and watching everything. And just about the time that little eagle thinks it will meet its death, the father eagle swoops in underneath it and catches it on its back and takes it back up to the clouds to repeat the process. Such is the life then of an eagle when it's young. But I found that and I thought, well, it, it shows this. I mean, isn't that God? Isn't that our loving, compassionate, perfect father who is always looking after us like the father eagle is looking after his young? He's waiting to catch us, puts us on his back and will carry us through the storm. And will bring us back. We have the song of Moses. Which reminds us of our bad character. Their bad character. We also have bad character. And also reminds us of God's consistent, high, good, great character. And the blessing he is to his children. So we're left with this question. Is your life receiving the blessings of God's good, high character? Perhaps this morning, if you find that it is not, if you're not feeling blessed, maybe it's because you have turned and walked away from the Father who is circling above, ready to catch you and rescue you, ready to bless you. Maybe your bad character has created some distance between you and God. So if that's the case, isn't it time you come back to the Father? Or at the very least, seek Jesus to be reconciled to the Father? I mean, today we consider just 20 verses of the Song of Moses. I mean, maybe it is that Moses, if we consider Moses in his life, maybe it is that Moses, looking back over his life, as he writes this song, maybe he's looking back over his life. And maybe he thinks of how he was once an infant and he was taken out of the nest. I mean, God stirred his nest where Moses was put into a little basket on a river. But the heavenly father swooped down and cared for him and took Moses into the nest once more. So now Moses remembers that the Lord told him to be this way. And when Moses was leading the children out of Israel, 
across the wilderness, God promised that he would be with them and bear them on eagles' wings. So now Moses is coming to the end of his life. We see he's 120 years of age. He's coming near the end of his life. And he writes this song and he says, God has done exactly what he said he would do. He has been good to me. I have been consistently rebelling against him. I'm a bad person. I'm a person of bad character. I sin against the great, perfect, almighty God who loves me. He loves me. How do we know he loves me? He gave his only son for me. That's how much God loves me. He gave me his one and only son. How blessed are we? We are so immensely blessed. Yeah, we talked last week about him, his son being the advocate for us, who pleads for us. And now today we see that God, he cares for us so much. He loves us. There's no better display of the love a person has for another than to be offering to give up their life. John 15, 13, greater love has no friend in this than one be willing to lose his life. That's Jesus, our friend, our supporter, our fighter, our crusader, our advocate. It is time to receive the blessing today. Father, Lord, we thank you for the blessing that you are, for your love. Lord, we could never repay you for how bad we are and how we sin against you. Lord, you just keep looking after us, providing for us, caring for us. How thankful we are today, Lord. This message reminds us of your goodness. Reminds us also of our bad character. It reminds us ultimately of your good character and of your goodness you gifted us. So, Lord, today we consider fully the message, bringing it to an end. Let's be thankful of how blessed we are and how you've given us your son and how we know it's the best blessing for all of us in our lives. Lord, let us not even ask. Be bold enough to ask. Let us not even be bold enough to ask for another blessing. Let's just relish the blessing you've given to us of your son. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.